ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall, there's been encroachment on former Soviet territory. I mean, it's complete delusion. We're the ones that is putting NATO on everybody's border and pushing and inching further. It is the globalists and NATO in the West attacking Russia. To the point that NATO is now on Russia's border. Mearsheimer explained that NATO and European Union expansionism into Ukraine has already and will continue to pose an intolerable threat to the Russians. G'day! Welcome to Surfing the Discourse. This is the show where we deep dive into the conversations happening right now and we try to figure out who's talking sense and who is talking nonsense. I'm Jack Treadwell. And uh, today, we're going to be talking about the Ukraine war. This is a topic that has been percolating and circulating in the public discourse for uh, about a year and a half now. When when did bloody Putin decide he wanted to invade? 2022, early 2022. So yeah, that's about a year and a half, unless we go back to the Crimea invasion, and we're talking several years. So maybe you're tired of hearing about the Ukraine war Maybe you can't get enough of it. Maybe you've got no idea what's going on. But whatever the case, in this episode, we are going to be taking a bit of a sidelong look at the Ukraine war. And we'll be viewing it through the prism, through the lens of what the chattering class are saying about it. The loudmouth class, maybe. The the discourse surfers and partisans. We're going to be hearing hot takes galore. And we're going to emerge from this little foray with some fairly uh, enlightening insights, I think, um, particularly about some of the dynamics of the discourse. All right. So a popular narrative has emerged surrounding this whole Ukraine affair. And it's been peddled, it's been pushed by a range of people who, at first glance, may not seem to have a hell of a lot in common. There's people on the left, people on the right. But at second glance, they certainly do have something pretty important in common. And this something helps to explain why they've all arrived at the particular views that they have. So, I mean, call me a cynic, but I suspect I've got a a nagging little feeling that many of the people I'm going to cover today have arrived at their views on the Ukraine war, not because they have any relevant expertise on the subject and not because the the view is correct or has you know much of a likelihood of being true, but rather because it's an appealing narrative that fits within their sort of existing worldview and their values and motivations. Uh, it's just a suspicion. You, you can make up your own mind on that. So what is this popular narrative exactly? I'll give you the kind of broad overview now, but we'll we'll see it in more detail as we go along. But there's, there's basically a few components to it, but primarily the core of the idea is that the Ukraine war fundamentally is the fault of the West. Specifically, it's NATO's fault. By the way, if you don't know who NATO is, don't worry. I'm going to give all the necessary historical context shortly. But anyway, these people, this narrative downplays the culpability of Russia and Putin and emphasizes the culpability of the West. And then there's a bunch of other points that kind of orbit this idea, and we'll see these kind of as we go along. Now, one thing to notice is that this narrative is like fundamentally anti-government, specifically anti-Western government. And the narrative is also sort of heterodox, it's contrarian, and that it runs counter to the mainstream or conventional narrative. So the official narrative is more inclined to blame Putin and Russia directly, whereas this uh, this heterodox narrative blames the West. So who do you think might endorse such a narrative? Do you think we can predict in advance who who might promote it? What about, say, uh, Eric Weinstein? Um, he's heterodox. Yep. He's anti-government. Yep. Does he have this particular take? Yep, he does. He does. Uh, Russell Brand. He's a conspiracy theorist who is ill-disposed towards the government. He takes views that are well outside the mainstream. And yes, he does. He has this same narrative about Ukraine. And on and on like this. It's, uh, it's interesting. You can quite easily predict in advance who's going to hold the view, just based on their anti-establishment, anti-government, <laughs> heterodox 
outlook on the world. And we're going to see uh, some of these characters as we go. Okay, it's worth pointing out that parts of the, the narrative that these people hold do come from like legitimate academic and policy debates. So I want to be clear that I'm not saying that there's no room for substantive debate about whether NATO's actions could be a factor in having nudged Russia to take such aggressive action. But the point is that in the hands of non-experts, we see all kinds of half-truths, half-arguments get confidently spun up into a, like a sweeping narrative, which again is reductively like anti-Western government and anti-mainstream. So the people that we're going to be covering are situated across the political spectrum, mostly on the right wing though, but they're all in some way or another anti-government. So whether they're left-wing libertarians or right-wing populists, or wingless conspiracy theorists. They've all kind of grabbed at this narrative, like it's a great big shiny prize, they just can't resist it. So yeah, this, it's going to be uh, an interesting ride. Okay, so obviously a bit of historical background is going to be necessary to make sense of all the commentary, and I'll get us up to speed as we go along, but first I'll just give a big picture overview of some of the background here. Um, bear with me if you've already graduated well beyond History 101. I'll try to keep this brief. All right, so the background to all of this. We had the Soviet Union, which existed from 1922 to 1991, and that consisted of most of Central and Eastern Europe. And the beating heart of that was modern-day Russia. And, okay, the Soviet Union is kind of pitted against Western Europe and other Western powers, principally America, because of, shall we say, differences of opinion regarding how to do politics. And so the Western powers, uh, Europe and America, Canada, they formed an alliance called NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the central purpose of which was... Uh, Actually, I'm going to let uh, Dave Rubin explain this. Here, here, Dave, Dave does a bloody good job of explaining this, so take it away, Dave. The basics of what you need to understand there is that NATO and NATO countries have this agreement. If one NATO country is attacked, then everyone in, in unison must attack back, right? That's how it is. If Russia was to attack, say, Germany, which is a NATO country, then everybody in NATO has to get in on that. Okay, thanks, Dave. Bloody, uh, bloody great historian, that guy. Um, okay, so NATO is in the West, Soviet Union is in the East, and these two sides fundamentally hostile to each other. Each side had nukes. Uh, it was a tense time. This was the Cold War. And then, in 1991, the Soviet Union dissolves into individual states. Uh, so Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, Latvia, Estonia etc. And what does NATO do now that they are now that their arch enemy is and really the whole reason for existence has disintegrated? Well, they don't disband, they don't pack up and leave. They pivot. They and they become a kind of peacekeeping and like conflict resolution outfit. So for example, stepping in to prevent genocides and other human rights kind of kerfuffles. In, uh, in Europe. Uh, some people definitely will scoff at this characterization and they'll point to NATO's involvement in certain events like uh, Libya and the Yugoslavia bombing. Uh, trust me, I know this. I've argued <laughs> with these people ad nauseum on, on uh, Reddit. I've been over and over these, these issues. But fundamentally, like, they're wrong about, at least at the very least, about NATO's intentions. They, they go to these places to break up a genocide or something along those lines. So new NATO, basically, it's Europe's HR manager or something. Okay, but in the meantime, they're doing this HR role and they're still fundamentally a treaty organization. So the thing that Dave Rubin was talking about earlier, that still applies. If anyone attacks a NATO country, they're all going to come to its aid and descend on them like a swarm of angry bees. Okay, so this is where things start to get spicy. So, following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, NATO uh, started to let a bunch more countries into their club. 
including former Soviet states. Uh, and so this is now seen by some people as a major scandal. You know, the likes of Eric Weinstein and uh, a bunch of other non-historian, non-political scientist commentators who we'll hear from shortly. And it's a scandal because, they say, along with a couple of other missteps by the West, it's basically the central cause of Russia's attack on Ukraine. And so it's it's basically why the Ukraine war is happening today, this, this letting of other countries in, in Central and Eastern Europe into the club, into NATO. But of course, most of the people that you'll hear spinning this narrative didn't like read the history for themselves or anything, I suspect. They inherited these ideas pre-assembled. So these ideas had already been circulating, and the main kind of popularizer of this way of thinking about the situation is a political scientist called John Mearsheimer. So he's got a lecture on YouTube, which he put out after, the, after Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014. And he advances the view, basically, that Russia's invasion was caused by the West's meddling. So guess how many views this lecture has, which is, keep in mind, it's over an hour long. It's quite academic. How many views? Just under 30 million views. 30 million views on a lecture. It's pretty remarkable. So that should give you a sense of just how influential these ideas have become now. But at the time of his recording it, it seems like it was a fairly fringe view among the relevant academics. So listen to this clip of, of Mearsheimer from this lecture uh, telling us that. My argument is that the West is principally responsible for this mess, not the Russians. Uh, this, of course, is not the conventional wisdom in the United States. And in fact, except for Steve Cohen, who's now at Princeton, I mean now at NYU, he used to be at Princeton, Henry Kissinger, and maybe a handful of other people, uh, there are not many people who agree with me. So in the academic field of international relations, Mearsheimer is what's known as a, quote, realist. You might hear this term floating around in the context of this debate, and I'll give you a definition in a second, just so that you don't do what Joe Rogan does in this next clip and like embarrass yourself by completely and utterly misusing it. So here's Joe. Well, what's scary is what happens if Ukraine runs out of troops. That's what's terrifying. Is like, how many more soldiers do they have left? How many more people can they force to fight that war? Like, what is the truth in terms of what are their losses? Because what you hear from people that are the true believers in the leftist movement is that Ukraine is winning and that Russia is doomed. We must support Ukraine. And then what you hear from realists, particularly people that have been on the ground, they're like, it's a slaughter fest. Okay, good good try, Joe. But realism actually means something quite different in this context. So, okay, so the relevant part of realism here is that it emphasizes the mutual hostility and like selfishness of, of individual states. And it kind of reduces interstate dynamics to like basic calculations about who has more power and therefore who's threatening who and what we should do about it. And this is sometimes called balance of power theory. So that's another term you might hear. All right, so as a realist, Mearsheimer views the, and this was in 2015, remember, so he viewed the Russian uh, occupation of Crimea as a kind of rational and pragmatic response to what NATO was up to, namely sort of expanding closer to their doorstep. So NATO being Russia's enemy, Russia, understandably, he says, felt threatened and sort of lashed out to prevent NATO's further expansion into Ukraine. Now, this NATO expansion is what Mearsheimer calls the deep cause of Russia's occupation of Crimea. But the immediate cause, he says, was the 2013 and 2014 protests in Ukraine, which we'll talk about in a bit later. These protests led to the ousting of the president of Ukraine, who was pro-Russia. And Mearsheimer calls this a coup, um, but we'll, we'll later see that that's kind of a misleading term. But anyway, this is an important part of the story because all sorts of political commentators who we're going to hear from have really taken this idea and run with it, and really elaborated it, and they ultimately try to pin it on Western interference. So these protests, which we'll talk about later, they 
sprung up quite naturally, quite organically within the Ukrainian populace to events that were happening there within their government. This is, yeah, according to a lot of the people we're going to hear from, this was really the doing of the West in some way or another. So we'll, we'll see that later in more detail. But for now, so consider the narrative we've got here. So NATO and the West expanded towards Russia, causing Russia to, f- to rightfully feel threatened. There was a coup in Ukraine that ousted the pro-Russian government, and many people argue this coup was instigated by the West. And so as a result, Putin lashes out, he invades Ukraine, first in Crimea, and then later on in the full-scale invasion that we're seeing today. So the upshot of all this is that it's the West's fault, specifically Western governments, specifically NATO, the US, and Putin and Russia aren't really to blame. Now, Mearsheimer's work has been very influential, as I mentioned, and so I'll play a few clips that'll give you a taste of just just how far they've kind of spread. Listen out for some familiar voices in these clips. In a singularly lucid one-hour presentation, Mearsheimer explained that NATO and European Union expansionism into Ukraine, the invitation proffered to Ukraine to join the EU, the formal statement of the desirability of NATO's extension into Ukraine, has already and will continue to pose an intolerable threat to the Russians. I mean, it's complete delusion. We're the ones that is putting NATO on everybody's border and pushing and inching further. We got into a habit during peacetime of... Um, just deciding that every time we could expand NATO, that was a great thing. Every single president since then has moved NATO east to the point that NATO is now on Russia's border. It is the globalist in NATO and the West attacking Russia. Ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall, there's been encroachment on former Soviet territory. Okay, now before I start digging into the specific arguments of these these people and other commentators, it's probably a good idea to like examine this this idea that it was NATO's provocation that caused Russia to invade Ukraine. Because, hey, it might actually be right, in which case it wouldn't be very much fun to paddle all these people for repeating it. So fundamentally, I think the overarching question here is whether it's right to minimize Putin and Russia's role in what's happening in Ukraine and to heap the blame on Western governments and on NATO. So the Mearsheimer Anti-Government Club thinks it is right, while the conventional view says that it's wrong. I'm not going to focus too much on the conventional view, but basically some people on the conventional side are amenable to the idea that NATO expansion was a factor. Some, some of them are not. But what they all have in common is that they pin the blame really squarely on Putin and on the Kremlin, the Russian government. And generally, they highlight the idea that a big part of the story is Russia's desire to, at minimum, kind of keep greater Russia in their orbit. So like former Soviet states like Ukraine. And at most, to actually like expand into greater Russia through, say, invasion. And they might want to do this because, A, it would be pragmatically and like materially beneficial for Russia. And B, because it fits with their romantic image of historical Russia and their, their sense of Russia's like global prestige. So this is interesting. Here's a clip of Mearsheimer actually agreeing with this basic idea. Conventional wisdom is that Putin is the main cause of the crisis. Some say he's either crazy or irrational. Angela Merkel was making this argument for a while. He's bent on creating a greater Russia. Uh, the idea that he's bent on creating a greater Russia... I think if he could do it, he'd do it. He can't do it. Okay, so he he actually agrees with that part of the conventional view. But of course, none of the people who have taken up his ideas seem to have noticed that he said that because they all like blast the, the very idea as stupid as we'll, we might see in some of these clips. But now listen to this clip of Mearsheimer from this lecture because this is poetic. So while Mearsheimer acknowledges that Putin might want to expand. He insists that he won't do that because that would be stupid. So remember, this lecture was released just after the Crimea occupation, so before Russia's full-scale invasion that we're seeing today. And Mearsheimer is about to inform us that this kind of invasion will not happen. Categorically, it's not going to happen. What they're doing 
is not trying to conquer Ukraine. There are many people who say the Russians are going to go on a rampage, they're going to try and reestablish the Soviet Union or a greater Russia, uh, and so forth and so on. Uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, Putin is much too smart for that. In fact, if you really want to wreck Russia, what you should do is encourage it to try and conquer Ukraine. Putin, again, is much too smart to do that. Isn't that just poetic? And I can't resist playing this clip of Jordan Peterson talking about the Mearsheimer lecture and note that this happened after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Dr. Mearsheimer's remarkably prescient 2015 University of Chicago lecture. No idea how Jordan gets prescient out of that. I think the only prediction that Mearsheimer makes in that lecture is that Russia won't engage in a full-scale invasion, and he was wrong about that. So, yeah, thanks, Jordan. Um, okay, but anyway, going back to the point. So Mearsheimer concedes that Russia would want to expand if they could, but this doesn't necessarily contradict the idea that maybe Putin was worried about NATO's expansion. So maybe that did still play a big role, even if he had other motivations. So we'll consider whether that does actually make sense. So the main counterpoint that you'll see uh, uh, to the Mearsheimer view is that Mearsheimer is really mischaracterizing what actually drives the expansion of NATO. So they'll point out that it's not NATO itself that wants to expand for any sort of aggressive reasons, any militaristic reasons, but rather it's that countries want to join NATO for their own protection and because they have their own agency. So this point is totally valid, I think, and it rightly suggests that NATO shouldn't be demonized as like a the villain for, for, quote, expanding, because really it's just allowing countries to join. These countries are sort of often desperate to get into the alliance because they are concerned for their own security. Okay, but Mearsheimer could quite easily counter this point, and I've seen people on that side do so, by saying that it doesn't really get to the meat of the matter and that what's really relevant to consider is NATO's actual decision to allow all these countries to join because they argue this was a strategic error in that it was undeniably going to provoke Russia. So that was just a mistake to allow these countries in, even if, even though they were the ones who were sort of requesting entry into NATO. Okay, but here I'm going to walk through some of the strongest arguments that I've come across for why it's unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely, that a fear of NATO was high on Putin's list of concerns and therefore it's unlikely that this was a, a big driving force in, in his decision to attack Ukraine. So what are these arguments? First of all, NATO is fundamentally not a hostile, warmongering organization. And this is absolutely plain to see. So you can see it in the actual behavior of the organization. You can see it in the documentation that outlines their values and goals. You can see it in the culture and politics of all of the member nations like, does anyone think that Canada might want to start getting violent and throwing fists at Russia? Uh, but okay, uh, so that's all very plain for us to see. But isn't it a very Western-centric view? Like, maybe Putin and Russia don't see it that way. Maybe they have a completely different interpretation of what NATO is up to. So here's Mearsheimer making this exact point. Another set of arguments associated with the conventional wisdom this is that the United States is a benign hegemon seeking to promote European stability, seeking to promote stability in Asia all over the globe and so forth and so on. There's some countries like Japan and Germany for sure, Poland, who view the United States as a benign hegemon. There are many countries out there who do not. Iran is one, China is another, and Russia is a third. They just don't see it that way. And because they don't see it that way, you should understand that when you take measures, you meaning the United States, that you think are going to be interpreted as benign, the other side will not see them that way. They will see them as threatening. Okay, but I just personally struggle to buy the idea that history can cloud your perception so badly that you can't see what's like right in front of you. Like, History, I mean, nobody would say that history messes with Putin's sense of vision so badly that he can't, like, see the table in front of him, right? Like, Putin and, like, his security advisors, do they have such badly malfunctioning theory of mind that they can't 
ascertain the the intentions of NATO and the NATO people that they regularly meet with. Like maybe, maybe history's distorted their sense of perception so badly. It just seems implausible to me just because of how delusional you would have to be. And like, I, I feel like I want to give Putin and his advisors more credit than that. Okay, but so consider this. Russia has nukes, right? And NATO knows that Russia has the nukes. And Russia knows that NATO knows that they have nukes. And yet somehow Russia's also worried that NATO might attack them unprovoked. Like, that's how delusional you'd have to be. You'd have to literally think that NATO countries were suicidal, which seems totally preposterous to me. But we can do better, actually, than just an appeal to intuition here. Consider this. Since 1997, Russia has actually worked, like, very closely with NATO. So... In 1997, there was this NATO-Russia Founding Act, and this was signed by Boris Yeltsin, who was the president of Russia at the time. And this act, it actually gave Russia a permanent like seat at the table, basically, to be consulted on NATO matters and to allow for co- cooperation between NATO and Russia. So this paints quite a different picture, I think. And so I'm just going to read some of what the this NATO-Russia Founding Act actually states. And keep in mind that this was signed by both NATO and Russia. All right, so it says, NATO and Russia do not consider each other as adversaries. They share the goal of overcoming vestiges of earlier confrontation and competition and of strengthening mutual trust and cooperation. The present act reaffirms the determination of NATO and Russia to give concrete substance to their shared commitments to build a stable, peaceful, and undivided Europe, whole and free, to the benefit of all its peoples. And there's also, uh, it says, there'll be a commitment to refraining from the threat or use of force against each other, as well as against any other state, its sovereignty, territorial integrity, or political independence, blah, blah, blah. Um, And under military matters, it says that The member states of NATO reiterate that they have no intention, no plan, and no reason to deploy nuclear weapons on the territory of new members, nor any need to change any aspect of NATO's nuclear posture or or nuclear policy, and do not foresee any future reason to do so, uh, any future need to do so. All right, so in addition to this, there is a, a letter from Boris Yeltsin, who was the president at the time, uh, I think this is from 1993, actually, this this letter. He sent a letter to Bill Clinton, and he sort of tries to persuade Bill not to expand NATO. He's got kind of pragmatic reasons for that, um, sort of domestic pol- politics reasons. But he also says, quote, We understand, of course, that any possible integration of East European countries into NATO will not automatically lead to the alliance somehow turning against Russia. NATO is not being viewed as a block in opposition to us. All right, so explicitly, Boris Yeltsin, he confirms that he's not concerned about NATO's expansion. Well, he's not concerned that it's a threatening thing. Okay, somebody might argue, but that was when Boris was in charge, and that was also before NATO had allowed any new members to join. So that was before it had expanded. Sure, But then in 2002, after NATO had expanded, they'd let in a bunch of countries, and when Putin was in power, there was another NATO-Russia summit, and they actually expanded the scope of cooperation between the two entities, and Putin signed off on it. So Putin seemed to be relatively content with NATO's expansion at that point. Okay, but the counter-argument is that, well, countries who were admitted into NATO uh, at that point were closer to the West and that they weren't on Putin's doorstep, so that's a different thing. Well, a couple years later, some very Eastern nations were let into NATO, including Latvia and Estonia, who are literally on Putin's doorstep. They share share a border with Russia. Okay, so, so I'm kind of confused. Wouldn't the Mearsheimer realists predict some kind of like dramatic retaliation from Putin here? So the logic is it's exactly the same as with Ukraine today. NATO expanded right onto Putin's doorstep in 2004 into Latvia and Estonia. And what was the, what was the response? Well, you know, a, little, a bit of grumbling perhaps, but nothing dramatic, nothing like an invasion like we're seeing in Ukraine. Mearsheimer kind of shrugs this point off 
and he sort of says, oh, well, Russia was too weak at the time. You know, they couldn't really do anything about it. Uh, all right. But even if we wouldn't expect a military retaliation, we'd expect something, right? Like, so the argument is they feel strongly enough about this to invade Ukraine today. So why would they not feel strongly enough about it in the past to do something, you know, some kind of dramatic outburst, like even if it was just political? Surely at the very least, they'd like sever their diplomatic and cooperative ties with NATO, wouldn't they, out of protest? But no, Putin didn't even do that. They were, you know, they were still cooperating all the way up until Crimea, I think. Okay, so one final point, and I'll let Stephen Rademacher make this one. He's a former U.S. official and expert in foreign policy. What policies could have backfired more against Vladimir Putin and his declared objectives than the ones he's pursued? I mean, he, he claims he worries about NATO. Well, he's done more in the last two months to strengthen and revitalize the NATO alliance than America could have done in 20 years. Uh, and likewise, you know, the Ukrainian people, he doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. Well, as long as Ukraine is a democracy, there's going to be a popular demand in NATO, to, or I'm sorry, in Ukraine to join NATO. And, you know, if that wasn't true before this military intervention, it's absolutely going to be true after the military intervention. Uh, Putin has guaranteed the very outcomes he, he, he claims to most fear. Okay, so in other words, it's hard to argue that Russia's invasion was a realist-style, like, rational response to NATO's expansion and provocation because it was anything but rational. It had precisely the opposite effect of what uh, we're, we're claiming Putin wanted. Okay, so I'll summarize where we're at before we finally start digging into some clips. But we need to consider a couple of things. First of all, NATO's expansion was done purely out of regard for the nations that were like desperate for protection, i.e. from Russia, rather than out of an aggressive desire to expand and threaten Russia. And secondly, it's exceedingly likely, I think, that Putin knew this perfectly well. At the least, he must have known that NATO would be held in check from attacking him because of Russia's nukes. So it seems unlikely that he really perceived NATO as a threat. Meanwhile, Mearsheimer himself actually agrees that Putin would expand Russia if he could. And I think that what we're seeing with the Ukraine situation is much more consistent with that version of events than with the, the narrative that it's Putin being worried about NATO, that, which doesn't make much sense to me given the arguments that I just outlined. Now, I should note that, you know, it's, it's possible maybe NATO expansion did play a big role in Putin's decision, but for like a different reason. Maybe he knew that it would put a stop to any future plans to engage in like bullying tactics or expansion. And so he wanted to like get in before that happened because he saw the sort of specter of NATO approaching Ukraine. But if that's the case, you can hardly... You could hardly blame that on NATO, right? That, that'd that be like if some dude committed a robbery the day before it became illegal and, like, you want to blame the lawmakers for that robbery. Like, that's how stupid it is. All right, cool. But you don't really care what I have to say about all this. Let's hear from some experts. Expert bullshitters, that is. <laughs> um, first up, we've got Dave Smith. Who's Dave Smith, you might be wondering. I didn't know either, but there is a video of him laying out basically the Mearsheimer case on Joe Rogan, and it's currently got 10 million views on YouTube alone. Dave Smith is a libertarian. He's a, uh, he's a comedian, by the way. He's a libertarian, and in an interview, he once suggested that he would abolish all government if he could. So I wonder why he would be interested in the Mearsheimer view, given his anti-government position. Anyway, let's roll some clips. Dude, the official narrative on this, this whole war, it's just like it makes no sense. This war, the word they use over and over and over again, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Hillary Clinton, all of them, unprovoked. Vladimir Putin led an unprovoked war in Ukraine. But then, it's just like with Osama bin Laden, what they did with him then. Don't listen to him. Whatever you do, don't listen to what he's actually saying, because none of that's his motivations. Like, what his motivations are what we tell you. Osama bin Laden hates us because uh, we're free. And if you listen to Vladimir Putin and what he's saying, I mean, look, he's wrong for invading uh, Ukraine. And, I mean, you know me, Joe. I'm the most anti-war fuck fucking person there is, and there's no excuse for that. But to say he was unprovoked is, like, insane. 
It's just only people who know nothing about the history of this conflict would say there was no provocation. Okay, so there's a couple of things wrong with what Dave said, I think. First of all, only people who know nothing about the history would say that. Really? I think a long line of historians might want a word with you about that, Dave. Um, Well, okay, he did say only people who know nothing would say there was no provocation. Like, okay, literally zero? Maybe. Like, maybe um, historians would allow for a little bit. But Dave's claim really is that it's more like 100% provocation. And I think that's where historians would categorically disagree. So the other thing is that he's telling us basically to take what Putin says at face value. So when Putin talks about liberating Ukraine from Nazis and when he says that he doesn't want to be doing it, that, you know, the Ukrainians are brothers of Russia and, and yet he like doesn't hesitate to slaughter them by the thousands... We should just believe what he says, right? It's not like he, he might say something self-serving that's untrue. Um, okay, yeah, that's good advice, Dave. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, and this was uh, like verbally promised and put in writing, was that NATO would not expand one inch to the east. Okay, so this idea that NATO promised not to expand one inch to the east. So this has become a popular talking point among people who hold this narrative. So I'll also bring someone else into the fold here who parrots this point. And this is Candace Owens. I'll play more clips of her later. But basically, she's a right-wing populist commentator with a very surly disposition. And we'll see later on why she's personally keen on this version of events. But uh, listen to this clip of her. We're the ones that is putting NATO on everybody's border and pushing and inching further after we gave promises that we wouldn't do that, that we would not expand one inch eastward. Okay, so we're just not being honest. Okay, so was there actually a promise not to expand one inch to the east? So again, this is a common talking point that you'll hear from the Mersheimer Club. And the, the short answer is no. And the long answer is it's complicated, but no, not really. (laughs) Certainly there was nothing official or in writing. There might have been some like whispered assurances between officials. But recall the letter that I mentioned earlier from Boris Yeltsin, uh, the president of Russia before Putin, where he's writing to Bill Clinton to try to persuade Bill not to expand NATO. And there's no mention of any promise there. It's just appeals to like pragmatic reasons why he shouldn't expand NATO. So, yeah, this this is sort of a, a new thing that's emerged because it's an, a convenient way to demonize NATO. And Putin is certainly pushing this line and people are just gobbling it up. Um, also, recall from earlier, I was talking about the NATO-Russia Founding Act, and I read a few passages from that. And keep in mind that both Russia and NATO signed this, agreed to it. It also says that both parties are committed to a, quote, respect for sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity of all states and their inherent right to choose the means to ensure their own security. Now that, to me, kind of sounds like a promise in the other direction, since one way that a state might choose to ensure its security is joining NATO. So I think, uh, yeah, this, this promise argument doesn't really hold up. Okay, but continuing with Dave Smith's commentary. And the the um you know they they put under George W. Bush they put in um in uh Poland these dual use rocket launchers. There's a big complaint that Vladimir Putin has that he's like these these can be used to get nukes here in a matter of minutes. Like this is a this is like a threat to us that we cannot tolerate. Okay, I just want to point out uh, Dave's like earnestness and and reasonableness when he takes the perspective of Putin. These can be used to send nukes here. Like, please understand, this is literally a threat to us. Like, it's so reasonable. He's really, like, painting Putin as this, like, eminently reasonable character. But anyway, the so the dual-use launches claim that he's making that were were placed in Poland. So I looked into this, and from what I gather, the missiles placed in Poland were for defensive purposes. Like, they were literally to intercept incoming missiles defensively. I gather that dual-use means that they could in principle, be used to launch nukes. But I think this is like just obviously a skewed way of looking at things that they're there for defense. So I think there's there's very little reason Putin would actually have perceived this as a direct NATO threat. This is just totally like warping the situation. So cheers for that, Dave. All right, so let's hear some more from Dave Smith. And then in 2014, there was a coup in Ukraine. 
that was completely led by the West. So so it's just all these George Soros funded NGOs were funding the the militias on the ground who were overthrowing the the government and then there's a tape of Victoria Newland who's who's uh was at the State Department at the time, one of the top people at the State Department and she was basically talking about who would be the new government that took over who America didn't want in, who we did want in the new government. So it's not, you know, what happened basically was as Gideon Rose was even saying, the Ukrainian government was kind of siding with Russia, or at least a lot more pro-Russia. And then we overthrew that government and installed a pro-America pro government. And this to Putin, he had said over and over again, was a huge red line for him. Okay, so this, quote, coup is another major talking point of the Mearsheimer acolytes. So a bit more background. In 2013 and 2014, there were what's known as the Euromaidan protests in Ukraine. And here's what prompted them. So the government of Ukraine at the time was pro-Russia under President Yanukovych, and he'd started to kind of cuddle up with Western Europe. So he'd sort of gone away from Russia a little bit, and he was on the cusp of signing an agreement with the EU, which would have brought Ukraine closer to the EU, like economically and politically. And Yanukovych, he was at a certain point like adamant about joining this, and he told any sort of pro-Russian naysayers that he consulted with that he was immovable on the issue, like he was definitely going to be signing it. But prior to signing the agreement, Yanukovych has a secret meeting with Putin, and soon after, he refused to sign the agreement and instead signed one with Russia. So this is what sparked the protest, because plenty of Ukrainians had want, really wanted to join the EU, and they were outraged at this sudden reversal and the backdrop here is like one of previous corruption of the Ukrainian government by Russian influences. So there'd been pro uh, protests in the past about this kind of thing. And anyway, so the government cracked down on these protests violently. And this had the opposite effect. It didn't quell the protests, but it inflamed them even more. And ultimately, the end result of this was that Yanukovych and his pro-Russia government was voted out. And then a more pro-European government came into the fold. So this gets spun by people like Dave as a, a move by the West to engage in this coup, overthrow the government, and install a pro-European government. But the, the the actual facts behind the situation don't support this at all. Like, for example, the EU did not force Yanukovych to resign. They instead they they were actually trying to broker a deal that would uh, involve holding snap elections, where Yanukovych was able to to run, so he could have got reelected. Basically, the EU, like the people mediating this, they fundamentally wanted to respect the democratic process, but ultimately that that deal was rejected by Ukrainian opposition, and Yanukovych was voted out by the Ukrainian parliament. So this is, I don't know, this is hardly what I would think of as a coup, and it certainly wasn't something instigated by Western forces. This was something that happened organically and internally within Ukraine, because Ukrainians also have autonomy and influence, and it's not all about the West and the West's like power. So yeah, people like Dave will mention things like the this leaked phone call of uh, Victoria Newland, who was like a, a State Department official of the US. But all these things have perfectly innocent explanations. I'm not going to bother trying to litigate them here. It's basically just like classic conspiracy theory dynamics. You know, find find some anomaly, ignore all the surrounding context and like shoehorn half-truths into a conspiracy narrative. Like that's that's what's going on here. So not really worth getting into the weeds with that. Okay, so here's another talking point from the Mearsheimer acolytes. So here's another clip from Dave talking about this. There's this war right on Russia's border and there's no effort to negotiate going on. There's like no effort. In fact, from, from very uh, solid reporting that... Actually, America, through Boris Johnson, in, in it, told Ukraine not to negotiate with Russia at the very beginning of the war, when they had a deal worked out. They had a, they had a deal worked out. This has been reported in multiple sources that they had a deal worked out, and the deal was basically that Vladimir Putin would pull back. He would pull back his troops and leave Ukraine under the condition that – the very simple conditions that Ukraine uh, uh, guaranteed um, autonomy for the Donbass region and agreed to never join NATO. And like that was a deal. 
Like, okay, I'm not saying everyone thinks that's the perfect deal, but it's better than what we got right now. It's better than nuclear and- war. And here's a clip from Russell Brand parroting this same claim. And there was a peace deal on the table, and the West t- t- lobbied Zelensky not to take that peace deal. Okay, so the claim is Boris Johnson acting on behalf of America, according to Dave Smith, and on behalf of the West, according to Brand, told Ukraine not to negotiate at the beginning of the 2022 invasion. And yes, that's right. He did, in fact, advise them not to accept the deal. But (laughs) believe it or not, there was good reason for that. And also, believe it or not, like it was just advice. He wasn't strong arming them or anything. In fact, so the journalist who is commonly cited as the source for this information also says that Zelensky had other advisors and that he and his inner circle were like already hesitant about accepting the deal. Why? Because they didn't trust Russia to stick to the deal and also because public opinion in Ukraine was like against appeasement. And also because appeasement, appeasing Putin here, could have the opposite effect. It could embolden him to do more in the future. So yeah, it's not wasn't a great deal to accept, notwithstanding what Dave and others will insist. And there's nothing nefarious going on with Boris coming over and giving advice. Like, this is just how international politics works. Anyway, here's one last clip from Dave. And, you know, like, this would be seen as, would you call that an unprovoked attack? You know, if we were to go in there and then go overthrow that government? So, again, I'm not justifying what he's doing. But, and then the other thing to this, right? Okay, so I just want to seize on this. I'm not justifying what he did. Except, Dave, you absolutely are. You absolutely are. So, A, I mean, you say clear as day that we broke a promise to them and that we installed missiles nearby and that we crossed the red line, we staged a coup and we planted a pro-Western government in Ukraine. Um, B, you repeatedly emphasize how reasonable Putin's side of things is. And C, you literally implied that we would do the same thing. So... (laughs) So how is this not justifying it? This is exactly what justification is. You're saying Putin was eminently reasonable and we should have known and it was all our fault. Of course that's justifying it. And by the way, like all of the points he's making are either like wrong in some way, misleading. And the fact that they're all like, it's easy to poke holes in so much of what he's saying just shows that he didn't bother to check anything. He he likes this argument that the West is to blame and that Russia is justified. Uh, so... He's just paying lip service to the idea that he's not justifying it, but he's doing exactly that. You can't, you can't piss in our pocket, Dave, and tell us it's raining. All right, mate. Uh, I, I just don't buy it. Okay, so let's move along from Dave Smith now, and we'll jump over to Russell Brand instead. See what he has to say. Okay, so what does he think about this whole Ukraine affair? Uh, well, it seems like he's kind of picked up on a few talking points and he hasn't he obviously as we'll see hasn't really brushed up on the history and the facts so for anyone who doesn't know russell brand is a now disgraced conspiracy peddler and it's the recent sexual abuse scandal that has disgraced him mind you some would argue perhaps that he disgraced himself (laughs) the first the moment he opened his mouth like of any kind of opinion on politics but anyway disgraced conspiracy peddler Okay, so given that he's very anti-government and his views are unconventional, what do we think he'll have to say about the Ukraine situation? Well, since he's so against all kinds of like totalitarianism and government lies and corruption, he's going to come down hard against Putin and Russia, right? Right? No, of course not. (laughs) Of course not. Yeah, I'll roll this clip. This is from Russell Brand on Bill Maher's show a few months ago. Well, I would say, Bill, because of the ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall, there's been encroachment on former Soviet territory, that there was a NATO-inspired coup in 2014, and that there are significant profits being made. It's the same, in a sense, look, I would offer this. I'd feel a lot more comfortable about... Wait, who's coup in 2014? The, The 2014 coup in Ukraine that was backed by U.S. interests. Why would we back a coup that gave Crimea to Putin? They lost Crimea in 2014, Ukraine. Okay, so watch this maneuver that Russell Brand's about to do. So both of them are a little bit confused right now about the coup situation. Bill is asking why we'd back a coup that gave Crimea to Russia, but of course like the Crimea thing happened in the aftermath of the protests, so... If Russell knew what the hell he was talking about here, he'd just say, 
Uh, No, Bill, Russia grabbed Crimea in response to the coup. But since Russell doesn't have the foggiest idea what he's talking about, instead he's going to pull out a few (laughs) dirty tricks because he thinks he's like sort of on the back foot here. So watch this. He's going to try to like pivot and he'll straw man and he'll obfuscate and he's going to call Bill naive essentially and go on basically full retreat here all in the span of about 20 seconds. Wait, who's about coup in 2014? The, the 2014 coup in Ukraine that was backed by US interests. Why would we back a coup that gave Crimea to Putin? They the, lost Crimea in 2014, Ukraine. The ongoing, I think, right. Bill, to to say that this is that this is a humanitarian war that has, as an inadvertent side effect, created all this opportunity for profiting for the military-industrial complex is as naive as suggesting that the pharmaceutical industry would keep good on their pledge to not profit from the pandemic. I'm not entering into the territory. No. Like geopolitics is bloody complicated. Okay, that's. Masterful stuff, Russell. <laughs> well done. Uh, he, he Russell always does this kind of thing. He's like he's terrible at debating. When he gets challenged, he just engages in all these dirty tricks. It is uh, not becoming of a man of his uh, <laughs> his reputation. Uh, it's perfectly becoming, actually. It's, it's what we'd expect. All right. So now I want to move on to someone else, Tulsi Gabbard, who was formerly a Democratic candidate for president. And now I think she's independent, so she's she's left the Democratic Party. I didn't know much about her prior to researching her for this episode, but I quickly realized that she is not someone to take seriously. So Tulsi seems to me, based on what I've seen, to be fundamentally a populist. So I think of populism like this. Basically, populists always appeal to the common person, and they talk about how the elites... Uh, the elites in government and the elites in institutions are not working in the common interest. They're working for themselves. They're out of touch and change is needed. So this is a populist narrative. It's kind of part and parcel with being anti-establishment, anti-government. And you might have seen chatter about this lately. Populism has been on the rise, particularly on the right wing with Trump being a kind of populist superstar. So this phenomenon has been well documented. And we've seen a bunch of it on this podcast, and no doubt we're going to continue to see more as I continue to cover these anti-establishment folks. But anyway, Tulsi Gabbard, populist, at least in my interpretation, I have seen some other articles which sort of agree with that take. But let's see what she's about. First up, does she blame NATO and the West for the Ukraine situation? And that is the thing that is most tragic about this heartbreaking situation with this war is that it could have been avoided if President Biden and NATO had done exactly what you were just talking about in in agreeing, hey, we're going to take NATO off the table for Ukraine, something that both the U.S. and NATO have agreed is not likely to ever happen and something that is a legitimate security concern for Russia, that they they won't accept having U.S. and NATO troops on their border within Ukraine. Had the U.S. and NATO leadership done this, this situation could have could, could have been uh, prevented. She takes things a bit further than this, though. She takes a leaf out of Russell Brand's book here and suggests foul play on the part of America's political elites. So listen to this. With things like funding the Ukraine war with Russia, please explain to people what that means and why why we're sending so much money over to Ukraine. Um, so, so let's start with, with that. Let's start with the military industrial complex. What is it? Who is it? It is these massive defense corporations who make, uh, all these different weapon systems from the smallest to the most powerful nuclear weapons and missiles. Uh, when we are at war, they make a lot of money. Uh, when, uh, politicians, Uh, Even if we're not at war but are threatening that we may go to war, they make a lot of money. Do you think that whoever the powers that be and whatever the influence is from the military-industrial complex, that they are trying to prolong this in order to profit? So they're trying to continue to fund Ukraine. This gives them an excellent reason to ramp up budgets and 
keep shipping over weapons and arms. They keep making more and more profit and just get us right to the point where it gets squirrely. Well, Putin won't do it. He won't do it. He won't do it. But if he does it, there's no pulling back from that. There's and the no only reason why we would ever get to that point is because people are trying to make more money. That is that is certainly a major driver. I have no doubt about that. So yes, sounding very conspiratorial. I don't want to get too much into the weeds about the military industrial complex here, but I'll just briefly note one kind of high level thing to say about it. So I've been rereading Stephen Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, rereading because it's a brilliant book. And in the book, Pinker points out something that has been well documented by historians, which is that war has declined enormously over the last century. And in particular, over the last like 50 years or so, there's been very little war. So these military industrial complex guys, they've been sleeping. Like, holy shit. They've really, they've really dropped the ball on this, like to let war decline so much, which is kind of odd given how effective they've been with this whole like Ukraine thing, right? Like they've really finessed the Ukrainian thing. They've, they've got themselves these, this wonderful deal, making a whole lot of money hand over fist. And only, you know, Joe Rogan and, and uh, Tulsi Gabbard have seemed to notice what they're up to. So yeah, I don't know. It seems kind of inconsistent. They're, they're so sharp in some contexts, and yet they've let war decline like this. So, like, what's going on there, guys? Anyway, one more clip from Tulsi, just to see how upside down her thinking here has gotten. Nuclear war could break out in a week, in 30 days. We, we are staring over the precipice of that nuclear brink now more than ever before. And, you know, I, I hate to, to paint such a bleak picture, but this is... People need to know that this is the reality that we're facing, that our leaders have pushed us and led us to this brink of nuclear war. They have their own bunkers and and ways to protect themselves. There is no shelter for the American people. Yes, those callous, diabolical military industrial complex people. Uh, they're like blasé about the fact that their greed might lead to nuclear war because Hey, they've got bunkers to hide in. <laughs> they like pop out of their little shelters. Earth is like a barren wasteland, like full of deadly radiation. But now they're, they're quite, uh, they're quite cozy. They'll be quite cozy in their little dungeons and their little bunkers. Oh, goodness me, silly, silly idea. So anyway, let's leave this dim wittery behind, and we'll instead move over to look at some numb scullery. So back to Candace Owen. So she is the right-wing firebrand I talked about earlier. Um, she's very much in the populist part of the right wing. Uh, so here are a couple more silly ideas from her. I mean, with Putin, obviously the worst thing that we could have possibly done, which is what's happening now, is folded him further into the arms of the East, okay? Putin should be a natural ally with the West. Ah, uh, yes, Putin, ex-KGB agent during the Soviet era. A perfectly natural ally for the West, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, and also, <laughs> we've folded him into the arms of the East? Motherfucker, he is the East. God damn, what is she saying? So silly. All right, here's another. We have been pushing this fake Cold War for way too long, okay? We're not in the 60s anymore, okay? Putin is not trying to rebuild Soviet Union. Uh, he doesn't have the money. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Oh, he doesn't have the money. Oh, good. Well, that's good. Let's let's disband NATO then, and, and we'll leave everyone to their own devices because Putin doesn't have the money, and will presumably never have any in the future. Uh, oh wait, what? He's waging war on Ukraine. Where the fuck did he get the money for that? Goodness me, what a what a twit. <laughs> uh, um, also, all of the countries and their populaces who are desperate to join NATO to secure protection from a future Russian threat. Are they the ones pushing the Cold War narrative? And hasn't their concern kind of been like sort of vindicated now with what's going on? Uh, yeah. Um, all right. Now, we've got a few more clips from a few more of the usual suspects. Dave Rubin, Eric Weinstein, uh, Jordan Peterson, demonstrating various levels of inanity. First up, we'll go with Eric. Here's a clip from him. I don't know what conversation we're having. 
I'm, I'm just very confused by it. When you have Article 5 status in NATO and you decide that you've got peacetime careerists who want to burnish their resumes by saying, I'm the president who extended uh, NATO to more countries. That happened under my watch. Mm-hmm. And you're not really thinking about the idea. This goes back to Steven Pinker's idea that we're living in the most blessed era of all time. <laughs> right. I actually forgot why I put that clip in there. But was that derision towards Steven Pinker at the end there? I'll hear bloody none of that. Okay. No, no, not a bad word about Stephen. Okay. That's right. Draw the bloody line, Eric. Anyway, here's another clip. We got into a habit during peacetime of um, just deciding that every time we could expand NATO, that was a great thing. And depending upon how you think about that, either it's a wonderful strategy for, um, you know, really controlling Russia by encircling it with allies of the West, or it's a provocation, just the way we would see it if it was happening in our hemisphere and somehow China was setting up a base in Toronto or something. Thank you, Eric. So let's look at his little either-or there. So he said that expanding NATO is either a good strategy for controlling Russia or it's a provocation. Um, but like serious people aren't seeing it as either of those things, Eric. Like NATO isn't trying to encircle and control Russia Again, they're allowing countries that really want to join because they're concerned about, about their defense to join. So your either or doesn't really uh, allow for the, the real situation, the reality. Um, a bit silly. Anyway, getting a bit dopier still, let's look at Jordan Peterson. So he's going to suggest here that maybe Russia's dabbling in the Ukraine has something to do with woke politics. So here's this. The idea that we are ensconced in a culture war has become a rhetorical commonplace. How serious is that war? Is it serious enough to increase the probability that Russia, say, will be motivated to invade and potentially incapacitate Ukraine merely to keep the pathological West out of that country, which is a key part of the historically Russian sphere of influence? To answer that question, I'll turn to the analysis of a recent sequence of significant events in the U.S. Okay, so at that point, he starts rambling on about U.S. politics, and I couldn't be bothered listening to see if he ever came back around to the point. I kind of skipped ahead, and he never really seemed to. But yes, I think that is the answer to his question. Yes, wokeism caused Ukraine or something. I don't know. God. I've saved the best for last, though. Here's Dave Rubin. (laughs) So here here he is scraping the absolute bottom of the barrel looking for criticism of the U.S. government's role in and uh, response to the war. What else is going on with Ukraine these days? Well, it turns out, guys, you're going to be very excited about this as good taxpayers. Uh, it's not just that we're funding the war. Uh, we're funding far more than that. Uh, and even now, 60 Minutes is covering it, which tells you this thing might actually be bursting forth into the mainstream now. American taxpayers are financing more than just weapons. We discovered the U.S. government's buying seeds and fertilizer for Ukrainian farmers. Okay, so this clip goes on to detail other, like, humanitarian things the U.S. government is funding in Ukraine, like helping to find and clean up unexploded bombs. But here's the rest of the the clip. Russia's invasion shrank Ukraine's economy by about a third. We were surprised to find that, to keep it afloat, the U.S. government is subsidizing small businesses. Awesome, dudes. We're subsidizing small businesses in Ukraine. Sure, here, if you have a small business, we'll shut you down, and you can only go to big box stores, but in Ukraine, we'll fund your little operation, man. So Dave has a problem with providing humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Got it. Nice one, mate. Um, All right, we're going to bring this to a close now. I was also going to cover the question of whether it's a good idea for Western nations to fund the Ukraine war effort. And I was going to hear what various people have to say about it, but it's getting a bit longer than I expected. Uh, Anyway, you can probably guess that there are plenty of sensible opinions going around with regard to that question. Okay, I I will actually play one last clip. So this actually does, this gets at what strikes me as a good argument for why it's important to fund the Ukraine war effort. So this is the journalist Brett Stevens on Sam Harris's podcast. Can you just give me the 
the moral and geopolitical case for our support of Ukraine? I think in Ukraine, our moral interests almost wholly coincide with our, our national interest. We have a moral interest in defending a victimized state against a authoritarian bully who has no regard for any ordinary norms of law or laws of, of warfare or human rights. And we also have a vital national interest in showing that we are prepared to defend embattled democracies in the face of this kind of aggression, not just for the sake of Ukrainians, but for the sake of whoever it is that autocrats like Putin, but also Xi and maybe Khamenei in, in Iran want, want to attack next. So Xi is looking very carefully at the outcome of Ukraine to determine whether he's going to strike Taiwan. And if Putin is allowed to win, or at least to keep his gains and freeze the conflict, we will be in greater danger, not less, which is why doing the right thing by the Ukrainians is also doing the right thing by the American people. All right, so wrapping up, we've seen that many people in the West are inclined to blame the West, and in particular to blame Western governments and NATO, for what's going on in Ukraine and to paint Putin and Russia as more or less like justified in what they're doing. The people who are running with this narrative are invariably anti-government types. You've got populists, you've got conspiracy theorists, you've got libertarians. They're mostly on the right, uh, but also on the left as well. For example, Noam Chomsky, he's a famous like left-wing government hater. Uh, he's also predictably subscribed to that narrative. The fact that so many people blame the West is kind of galling because it plays right into the hands of Putin, who is spinning these same narratives in what is undoubtedly like a cynical, self-serving manner. Dave Rubin and co. <laughs> don't realize that to Putin they're just useful idiots spreading these narratives. To be clear, I'm not saying that NATO can't have been a factor in the war, just that it is highly unlikely, in my view, to have been a big factor unless it was because Putin was worried about Ukraine falling under the protection of NATO so that he couldn't bully them anymore, keep them under his thumb. But if that was the case, then it would be perverse to blame NATO for that. In any case, to blame the West for this and downplay Putin's role, I think, is completely backwards. NATO wasn't provoking Russia. They were allowing countries to express their own agency and to join for their own security. And it seems very likely that Putin and Russia didn't perceive NATO as a threat. I honestly didn't intend to come away with a strong opinion after my little foray into this topic. My intention was really just to document some of the like dopier opinions on the Ukraine war. Um, but I think that a clear-eyed look at things like really has to lead to the opinion, at least the broad opinion that we should be blaming Russia for what's going on, blaming Putin and not the West. I think it's perverse to be like heaping the blame on the West. You, there's room for nuance there. I understand that. Like you could, you don't have to disregard NATO as a factor. But yeah, I think the people that I've been covering, their narrative is totally driven by just a disdain for Western governments and purely ideology based and not an earnest attempt to assess the facts on the ground. If anyone's been hate listening to this and is like itching to unload a whole lot of obscure like NATO documentation and like old letters uh, to show me that I'm dead wrong in my views, please hit me up on Twitter. Um, we can go back and forth unproductively for a little bit if you like. Uh, but to everyone else, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed, maybe even learned a thing or two. And I'll see you again next time. See you later. <laughs>